0: Inside Sources. Inside, Inside sources. sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio.
1: It was just over a year ago. President Joe Biden and many in Congress were calling to ban TikTok due to its ties to China and a whole laundry list of national security concerns. One year and lots of lobbying dollars later. The President of the United States joined TikTok and kicked it all off on Super Bowl Sunday. But beyond that particular headline, it wasn't the only China connected and deeply troubling ad that appeared during Super Bowl Sunday. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. President Biden clearly raised some eyebrows over Super Bowl weekend, uh, joining TikTok. And uh, not just joining, but going in in a big way, uh, despite having called for it to be banned uh, or sold off uh, because of those deep ties to China and, uh, of course, a host of other things that go underneath that from a national security concern. Uh, but on Sunday, there was another one that a lot of people didn't quite make the connection in terms of how it relates to China and a whole lot of really bad practices, human rights issues. Uh, but someone who did have their eye on the ball, as always, Representative John Curtis, uh, has been watching closely and actually uh, introduced uh, is introducing some new legislation uh, around this very issue. And uh, he joins us on the line. And Representative Curtis, first, tell us, what was it that uh, we were watching on uh, Super Bowl Sunday that probably no one connected the dots that this has a real human rights issue to?
2: Well, uh, first I have to confess, as I was watching the Super Bowl to see these ads, <laughs> but I was, and uh, um, what what caught my attention were these ads from Tamu, which is uh, Chinese, and it, it seems very clearly Chinese. And it, it it was kind of one of these things that, like, wow, that sounds really too good to be true. What they're what they're advertising, and if you look under the hood, it really is too good to be true. And I felt like we needed to do something about it, so. That Monday morning, my staff was already on it, working on an idea. And, and, and the, the bottom line for your listeners is that it, it's it's very clear that TAMIL uses some practices that, that we wouldn't approve of here in the United States. And one is that some of these products are coming from forced labor. And another is that they're skirting um, our our tariff laws by the way that they're bringing this, uh, these products into the United States.
1: Yeah. And so let's let's unpack that a little bit for our listeners. So uh, I think everyone will start connecting the dot. Uh, Timu, th- we saw a lot of those ads during the course of the Super Bowl. So, yes, I'm confessing as well <laughs> that <we're, laughs> we did dial in. Uh, uh, but there are some real serious things, both in terms of just some allegations in terms of uh, forced labor, some things that the House Select Committee on China has found. Uh, and so yes. just kind of walk us through all of those components of what is this company and uh, where are those trouble spots
2: well, I, this is Amazon's not going to like the comparison, but just for simplification, it's, it's, it's the Amazon of China, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is is uh, where these products and goods are coming from. And as you mentioned, the House Select Committee issued a report detailing that they were coming, uh, at least a, a fair number of these products were coming from the Uyghur forced labor uh, program in China. And I think Americans, you know, they, we, we all like a good deal, but I think if they knew that, uh, they would be very upset. Uh, That these products were being advertised and and sold and purchased here in the United States. So our our bill is called the No Forced Labor on TV Act, and and uh, you'll have a little smile if you use the acronym. It's it's the uh, NFL on uh, on TV Act. (laughs) No forced labor. sorry NFL uh, but we're what we're trying to do is make sure that uh, with their advertising uh, forced labor products it's labeled as deceptive practice mm. which would have then allow the FTC to ban them from advertising on, on US TV
1: yeah and I think that is that is so vital that we get to that portion of it. And uh, bonus points to your staff on the naming uh, structure there for the uh, No Force Labor on TV, on TV Act. Uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. But talk to us just a little bit. You've been uh, focused on the, the Uyghur population in China. Oh. Uh, it is a, a horrible plight. Uh, but give us, just for our listeners who aren't following this as closely, give us some sense of that yeah. and the fact that they're being forced to do this labor and then these things are being sold here in the United States it'll break your heart and that this is going on
2: in, in our world in this day. I mean, these are things that you, that you think went on in, in ancient history and it's not. The Uyghur, the Muslim population uh, in China and they the forced them into labor camps, re education camps, the forced sterilization. Um, both the Trump and the Biden State Departments have categorized it as genocide. I mean, it is that, it is that level of seriousness. And it's right underneath uh, our eyes happening in China. And what a lot of Americans don't realize is that we're, we're subsidizing that when we buy these products and services uh, from that region. And um, it's, it's really unfortunate and, and something that I'm just absolutely committed uh, to stop. As you know, there's a warrant out for my arrest in China because I've been pretty tough on them on, on these types of issues. Uh, so but I, I wear that as a badge of honor, and I'll yeah. just keep after him. On, 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 and, and listen, that doesn't mean we don't love the Chinese people, but it's, it's the CCP that we've got a problem with, uh, a dictatorship that is
1: is is really uh, out of control. Yeah, and I think that's so important for us to recognize that we have so many things that we are blessed with here in this country, religious liberty being one of those, one of those first freedoms, those founding freedoms. And here you have this Muslim population, the Uyghurs in China, uh, genocide, forced labor, sterilization. Uh, It is heartbreaking and uh, you've been a a great voice uh, for them uh, and for that movement and and one that we hope will continue as well. Uh, So as you look at this particular portion of it with this Forced Labor Prevention Act, uh, give us kind of the process moving forward. What comes next and uh, what are we likely to see?
2: Right. So we have actually dropped the bill. Um, I think I'll get a lot of support and help with this bill. This should be a good, uh, you know, a, a bipartisan issue. Um, Certainly, the awareness of just dropping the the bill for Utahns and and for us in the United States to be careful with this uh, new app. Uh, It's the fastest growing app on on Apple's platform, millions of downloads. And uh, somebody told me they're doing about, already doing about 75% of the business of a target. I mean, it's growing that fast here in the United States. And, uh, you know, we can't turn down a good deal. We all like a good deal. And so it's attracted a lot of people's attention. But there are some serious uh, problems, and people should be very well aware if they're buying products there that one of them is that they very likely could be buying something that was made with forced labor.
1: Yeah, and uh, that is the thing for all of us to be aware of. Again, it's uh, TEMU. It's T-E-M-U. That's the app. And, again, it was all over the Super Bowl. And uh, as Representative Curtis said, uh, they are growing very rapidly and a lot of these uh, products that they're selling. And, again, discount. uh, We all love a good discount for sure. Uh, but they aren't going through that compliance uh, as it relates to forced labor. And that's where we as consumers have to really look at it and say, okay, is this deal really worth uh, the suffering uh, that people who are being forced uh, to produce these products, uh, is it worth that? Uh, I think there's probably some uh, real national security and uh, privacy concerns going on as well with the the basis of that. Uh, to keep in mind as well. Representative John Curtis, this is great work. this is important conversation. thanks for bringing it to us thanks, today. Yep. all right. thank you. Again, that's uh, representative John Curtis. This is a one of those crucial conversations. It sounds so good. it looked so cute. The music was just bouncing along and nodding along and everybody went right along with it. But underneath the surface, this is why we do think again is you got to think again. Uh, it may be a great deal. It may give you a cheap product, but at what cost? And as we continue to let things happen, uh, whether that's the the Uyghurs who are being forced uh, to do a lot of this labor, whether it's allowing China and the Chinese Communist Party to drive a lot of these things and collect a lot of your data, by the way, uh, we have to get to all of that. we got to think again about things that look nice on TV or on our screens, but might be hurting entire populations on the other end.
0: Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources.
1: Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as always. And as we continue the conversation today, of course, we just spoke with Representative John Curtis uh, about some of the things happening during the Super Bowl. Some of those ads that were directly connected uh, to Chinese companies, whether it was TikTok or Temu. Uh, and those that have a a lot of big challenges. There was another ad that appeared during the Super Bowl that uh, sparked some interest uh, around political families. Uh, There was the uh, ad from uh, a PAC supporting uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and uh, it did cause some drama online uh, and in the social circles uh, for the Kennedy clan. And uh, someone who took a look at that, as well as some other famous families uh, who got into a few fights over politics. And uh, join us online, Peter Schaefer, uh, intern at Politico, Politico Magazine. And uh, Peter, welcome to the show.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on, boy.
1: Uh, we always love looking at the historics of this. So, uh, for maybe for our listeners who uh, weren't, uh, maybe they were over at the uh, guacamole dip uh, during the uh, particular commercial because there was only one, it was only 30 seconds. Uh, but give them an outline of what that was and why it caused such a stir in Camelot.
3: Yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere. A lot of people weren't expecting the ad. a uh, 30 second spot that was pretty much a replica of a 1960 ad for John F. Kennedy uh, with just different images. Robert F. Kennedy, who's running, Uh, just images of him. Um, And yeah, there was a bit of a surprise from the Kennedy family. A lot of folks have not been supportive of his candidacy or his campaign for some of his positions on vaccines, uh, but also worries that he could be a spoiler in the presidential election for uh, Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee ends up being.
1: Yeah. And then uh, we're going to take a look at that coming up at 150, uh, talking about uh, who that uh, plays to, some of these independent bids, what will or won't happen there. Uh, and so it's always interesting to see uh, how political families work through these kinds of things. And you have the next generations that move on. And uh, one of the things that I, I love, Peter, you you got into some of the historics of it. And I love that you started uh, with Benjamin Franklin uh, and his son, William, uh, and how they sort of had a divergent path there when it comes to politics. Describe that for us.
3: Yeah, I mean, this really goes all the way back. Family feuds. Really, you can see them throughout American history. Uh, The one with Franklin's really fun. It was fun to do some research on that. Benjamin Franklin's son, William Franklin, was really following in his father's footsteps, became a printer, and then later the governor, royal governor of New Jersey in the years before the American Revolution. Uh, But then they really went different ways. Benjamin Franklin, of course, became a revolutionary, um, and he tried to persuade his son, William, to join the Continental Army under George Washington in 1775, but he refused. Eventually, he was found... Uh, uh spoiling uh some of the colonists' plans uh, with some letters. He was tossed in solitary confinement, uh, had to flee in exile to England. Father and son never reconciled. Um and I really like looking through some of the letters here. Benjamin wrote to Franklin at the very end of his life: Nothing has ever hurt me so much and affected me with such keen sensations as to find myself deserted in my old age by my only son. Really shows you how deep. Some of these political feuds can
1: go. Yeah, it's amazing how the the politics can uh, get in there. Uh, you also explored another uh, interesting one in terms of family, and that was the uh, the Roosevelts. Of course, Presidents Teddy and Franklin were uh, definitely not on the same page when it came to the politics.
3: Yeah, that's for sure. I was interesting doing some research on that because even though they were on different sides of the spectrum politically, they actually had a pretty good relationship. Mm. It was most more so their cousin. That had the real beef. uh, That would be Alice Roosevelt on the Republican side and Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, the first lady on the Democratic side. Uh, Some of the things that Alice said about uh, Eleanor, uh, she'd impersonate Eleanor by tucking her chin, sticking out her teeth and braying. That's how bad blood had gotten between them.
1: Uh, always interesting to, to see all of that. And uh, uh, they always say, uh, you know, the, the, the politics and the family blood, uh, it's a, which one is more thick, I think, is the, often the question in the end in some of these political families. Anything surprise you as you were kind of digging through these? And you went through a whole host of them, from uh, from the Trumps to the Romneys uh, to the Kennedys to the Cheneys uh, and a host of others in between. Uh, anything stand out to you or, or a nice lesson learned from those?
4: Um.
3: You know, I, I, I guess it's nice to sometimes see when families are able to get back together, even mm-hmm. after uh, bad blood happens. The Cheneys are a good example there. Uh, in 2014, Liz Cheney was running for U.S. Senate in Wyoming. She came out in opposition to gay marriage at the time, even though her sister had recently married. Um, she lost that campaign pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until 2021, years later, that they were able to really reconcile after that. Um it's, it's nice to see those examples. Another example, actually, that wasn't included in, in this story, but was the McCain's. Um, they, too, had had some differences, but were able to reconcile. Um, it's something we see less and less of in American politics nowadays, I think.
1: Yeah. So always good when families
3: are able to reconcile over some of those differences.
1: Yeah, always good when we come back. And we need a, a big dose of that. We need more coming back to that. A lot of families have stopped talking uh, because of politics uh, over the last eight years. And I think it's something we all got to learn to to set aside and uh, to go back to what actually matters the most. And, uh, and it is uh, beginning there in the principles of family. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Great piece uh, at Politico, Politico magazine, and uh, great read and a uh, great way to roll into the weekend. Thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, Thanks for having me, boy. All right. Again, that's Peter Schaefer uh, from Politico magazine. And, uh, he just did a really nice job of articulating, Uh, Some of the different family feuds that began over politics, all the way back to uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son William through the Roosevelt's, Kennedy's uh, that we're seeing play out a little bit today. Uh, And it's always interesting to to see how that goes. And those challenges are real. Uh, But the thing that's most important for all of us to remember uh, is politics is downstream. Uh, It is downstream from culture, it's definitely downstream from community, and it's especially downstream from family, and we all just need to make sure we keep it there. All right, we'll step aside for some bottom-of-the-hour news. Don't go anywhere. More inside sources coming up next. Stick around.
0: Inside Sources Inside, Inside Sources America's Voice of Reason Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation
1: Inside Sources on KSL News Radio well, When Congress passes a law or the Supreme Court makes a ruling on a case one of the most important concepts that everybody should keep in mind is clarity because as we always say the words have meaning and the meaning matters and when the wording's unclear or vague it often leads room to have confusion and all kinds of misconduct. One legal concept that can apply this to specifically is this idea of qualified immunity. It's a term that we often hear as it relates to police officers, but it can actually apply to a wide range of government officials. So we want to dig into this whole idea of qualified immunity. What is it? Where does it apply? How does it create confusion rather than clarity and How does it hurt all of us? What needs to change? What do we need to know? Uh, We always turn to our friends at Reason, Reason Reason.com. Jacob Solem is senior editor at Reason, nationally syndicated columnist, award-winning journalist. He's covered everything from drug policy, public health, gun control, civil liberties, and criminal justice uh, for more than three decades. and has a great piece uh, at Reason.com. And uh, Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with this whole concept. I think most of us, we hear... uh, that qualified immunity and it's usually relating to some police brutality case or something. Just kind of unpack that a little bit for our listeners as a baseline.
5: Sure. Uh, Well, there's a federal statute that allows people to sue state or local officials when they violate their constitutional rights. That statute does not say anything about qualified immunity, but the Supreme Court several decades ago decided to impose that limitation on lawsuits under that statute. And what that doctrine says is that a claim cannot proceed. In other words, you can't even sue anybody unless the conduct that you allege violated clearly established law. Mm. And, and it's, you spoke of clarity. It's not clear what that means. Um, In, in many circuits, um, it is interpreted to mean that unless a government official has previously been found to have violated someone's constitutional rights uh, in a situation that's almost exactly like the one that prompted the new lawsuit, Mm. Uh, you can't, you can't proceed with, with the case. Uh, So that, that creates a big barrier for people, including people who have legitimate complaints about how they were treated by police officers or or other government officials. Um, So there's been a, 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 a renewed movement recently in recent years to uh, either get rid of qualified immunity entirely, which Congress could do, or, or the Supreme Court could do, or at least to uh, modify it. Um, and in that debate, conservatives tend to be leery of the idea because what they imagine is a scenario where police officers are just trying to do their jobs in good faith, and they will be accused often frivolously of using excessive force, And the fear of that kind of litigation, according to conservatives, uh, is that it stops the cops from uh, doing their jobs the way they should. They're afraid to get involved because uh, they worry about lawsuits. uh, There there are lots of reasons to be skeptical of of that idea. This is an idea that's been promoted by Donald Trump. Um, One is that qualified immunity, that it's it's quite hard, in fact, to sue uh, police officers not even successfully, we're talking about Mm. sue them at all to be able to even make the claim. And secondly, that even if uh, plaintiffs manage to overcome that obstacle, uh, uh, police officers already are routinely indemnified against damages, meaning their employers pick up the tap. Uh, But another aspect of that that sort of conventional uh, conservative narrative is that these cases are mainly about police officers accused of brutality, accused of using excessive force. And the study that came out from the Institute of Justice last week uh, challenges that notion. And they they analyzed thousands of cases uh, where people uh, appealed to uh, circuit courts uh, challenging rulings on qualified immunity. Um, And uh, they asked, you know, what? what were the facts of these cases? What did they involve? And although police officers were the most common kinds of defendants, Mm. about half of the cases involved other sorts of government officials. So not just police officers. And uh, the situation where a police officer is accused of using excessive force accounted for less than a quarter of these cases. Mm. So what, what are the other cases? The other cases often involve the source of government officials that conservatives tend to be skeptical of to worry about. So not just the cops whom they tend to reflexively back, but you're talking about mayors, city managers, school officials, state university officials, government employed social workers. Um, So, so, you know, there's always been sort of this contradiction among conservatives where they tend to be skeptical of government power. They tend to be worried that, that, uh, Government officials will misuse their power, except when it comes to police, uh, <laughs> to which I have always that contradiction has always, has always troubled me because those are government employees too. And if you right. think the government is prone to abuse, there's no reason to think that police officers are are, are uniquely immune from from that uh, that danger. Right. Um, but but the you know the other aspect to this is that uh, the vast majority of the cases did not involve claims of excessive force, and a lot of them involved uh, First Amendment claims. And uh, some of those First Amendment claims, uh, some of those cases did involve police officers. But we're talking about things like people who say something on social media and because it irritates uh, either local police or other other local officials, they get arrested on trumped up charges. And Mm -hmm. so they file a lawsuit. And in that situation, conservatives should be. You know, should should be able to easily imagine that they could get in trouble for stuff they say online <laughs> right. that irritates somebody, right? Something that's controversial. Uh, so they have reason to be concerned about that. You've got other cases involving, you know, universities that try to squelch uh, speech that, that university officials disapprove of, right? Mm-hmm. So they have may, may have may have speech codes. They may take – Disciplinary actions uh, against students or, or against faculty because they say politically incorrect things. You know, obviously, that's a situation where conservatives would tend to be alarmed. Um, uh, but that's the kind of situation where you can file a lawsuit under this right. federal statute. Yeah. Um, you know, you also have cases which you, you hear about from time to time involving uh, state-employed social workers who take away people's children. For reasons, for you know, for no good reason, uh, because of an imagined neglect or abuse that didn't really exist, and they may uh, parents may be separated from their children for months or longer. um, And conservatives tend to, you know, rightly get indignant about that sort of thing. But these are also cases where qualified immunity um, is a barrier to uh, not even to recovering damages, but even even being able to make the claim just to get it right. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So, so uh... I I I think it, it really complicates. The story about qualified immunity, we shouldn't just be thinking about uh, police officers who are accused of, of using excessive force, yeah. but all the other situations where police officers and and lots of other kinds of government officials um, violate people's constitutional rights.
1: Yeah. Uh, great perspective. This is one of those think again moments. Again, uh, we often hear that term qualified immunity. We think uh, police police brutality. There's a host of other things. And across the political spectrum, there's things that everybody ought to think again about uh, when so many of these things lack that precision or clarity uh, that you point out in your piece. Great perspective. Uh, Everyone should check that out. Jacob Solem, senior editor at ReasonReason.com. Jacob, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thank you. All right. uh, We'll step aside for a quick break. Uh, We'll come back with Inside Sources, Inside Look at Presidential Politics coming up next. Inside Sources,
0: an inside look at 2024 presidential politics.
1: Welcome to our weekly segment here on Inside Sources, where we give you an in-depth inside look at presidential politics ahead of the 2024 election coming first Tuesday of November. A lot of things uh, being shaken up, uh, even just within the last six hours. We've had a few little shakeups, uh, things that might impact what happens on the first Tuesday of November when it comes to presidential politics. Uh, first, a little bit of a shakeup uh, in the no labels movement uh, shifted away from uh, what they were anticipating. I think uh, you had uh, Joe Manchin uh, from West Virginia uh, saying that he will not run for president as an independent or as uh, part of the no labels movement. Ticket. Uh, they're still debating on that. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, of course, the president gave some remarks uh, following the death of Russian political activist Alexei Navalny. And uh, we'll break that down in great detail coming up at the top of the hour at 205. So stick around for that conversation. Nikki Haley's been hard charging on the campaign trail, crisscrossing her home state of South Carolina, hoping to uh, close and narrow the distance between her and former President Trump. And of course, as Dan Bauman just uh, broke the news for us, uh, that uh, the former president has been fined $354 million in a civil case in New York, also barred from uh, doing business in New York f- uh, for the next three years. Also, his son, uh, Don Jr. and Eric uh, each ordered to pay $4 million each. So some very interesting things happening on all fronts when it comes to presidential politics Uh, But I actually want to start with uh, Joe Manchin. Uh, Of course, he's been rumored. He's been teasing and toying with the idea of a potential third-party run, uh, most likely under the No Labels banner. In fact, we talked yesterday. uh, He's been doing this uh, listening tour uh, across the country. He was in Cleveland, Ohio yesterday and actually gave some really great insight, I think, in terms of what we should be thinking about and talking about uh, when it comes to presidential politics. So yesterday, He said one of the things that he's learning on this listening tour uh, is that things are a little different than we think they are, and people are pretty tired of it. Take a listen. We've been going
2: around listening, finding out why Americans seem to be so mad at each other or why they think they're so divided, because I'm going to tell you something, you're not. Washington's making you pick a side. They've weaponized the political process. It's not supposed to be that way. But it's gotten to the point now that if you're on one identification or the other, the other side must be your enemy. The more we keep talking, the more we keep hearing. People don't want that. They feel homeless and helpless because it's not the grand old party they belong to. Or it's not the good, responsible, compassionate, democratic party they belong to. They just don't recognize it anymore. And so what do you do? Where do you find that middle? How do you bring people back?
1: So really interesting, as you start to break this down, uh, I think uh, Senator Manchin got it absolutely right uh, that the political system, the two political parties, has weaponized everything in Washington, D.C., convinced us that there's only two choices, uh, and uh, it's the ultimate fake-fight-false-choice scenario that we keep being served up. So Senator Manchin said, look, the people are telling me they're not that divided. People are telling me they they like their neighbors, uh, that they do get things done in their community, Uh, And yet everybody feels like they're so disconnected uh, or so far apart when it comes to politics. And that's just wrong. Uh, The sad part of the program is uh, that uh, this morning, Senator Manchin said, no, I'm not going to run for president under a no labels banner. It will be interesting. I haven't really seen anything yet. uh, Not a lot of rumblings. I've been reaching out to some of my contacts inside of no labels to get a sense of what does this do to their movement? Uh, They have made a decision Uh, They made this decision last year, actually, that they wouldn't announce a presidential ticket until they got to Super Tuesday. So that's March the 5th, coming up pretty fast. Uh, And now with the absence of a Joe Manchin as a potential lead name on the ticket, uh, you also had the governor of Maryland uh, decided to run for the United States Senate instead of being part of a no-label ticket. So it'll be interesting to see what their strategy is and how that turns uh, based on who you can actually put on the ticket because that uh, that will actually matter in the end. Now, uh, President Biden, uh, on his political side of things, uh, really a mixed bag this week and a mixed bag just within the last couple of hours. Uh, The first part of President Biden's speech regarding the death of Alexei Navalny uh, was excellent. I give the president high marks. It was well crafted. It was sincere. It was meaningful. It was impactful. And he should have stopped right there but he didn't. He couldn't step away from the politics. And here's where the conversation went.
6: You know, we have to realize what we're dealing with with Putin. All of us should reject the dangerous statements made by the previous president that invited Russia to invade our NATO allies if they weren't paying up. He said if an ally did not pay their dues, he'd encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want. I guess I should clear my mind here a little bit and not say what I'm really thinking. But let me be clear. This is an outrageous thing for a president to say. I can't fathom. As long as I'm president, America stands by our sacred commitment to our NATO allies. All
1: right, since this is the political portion of this conversation, uh, the president completely whiffed right there. And just so we all know, if you ever have the thought in your head, I should clear my head about this and not say something Stop. Don't say it. The president should have just stopped. Uh, He was talking about the death of Alexei Navalny, the impact that has on people inside of Russia, our allies all over the world, uh, a life that was lost, a husband that was taken, a father, a great patriot to the Russian people, not the Russian government, someone who was a champion of freedom. And now we got to turn it into our own political weapon? Uh, that's wrong. Uh, The president shouldn't have gone there. Uh, And we'll go back to the praiseworthy portions of his speech from this morning coming up at 205. So stick around for that. I think that was a big whiff for the president. He's got to learn to just step away and just stop. Uh, It doesn't have to always be about the former president and his opponents uh, in the other political party. Uh, That's a big whiff. That's not leadership. uh, And the president's team, that's bad staffing. Uh, You don't let the boss do that. Uh, That's just really poor form. All right, let's uh, continue on the campaign trail. In an interview this week uh, with today, Nikki Haley contrasted herself with both President Biden and former President Trump. Here's how she laid it out.
4: I mean, you look at the situation we have now, you gotta be honest. You've got Joe Biden where the special counsel said he was diminished and he's not the Joe Biden he was two years ago. You've got a Donald Trump who's unhinged and he's more unhinged than he ever was. And why are we settling for that when the country is in disarray and the world is on fire? Why are we saying that's our choice? You've got a lot of good Americans who say this is very wrong. They're tired of DC not getting anything done. They're tired of the fact that they have two older men who are focused on themselves running for office and they're tired of the anger and the division.
1: Uh, so Nikki Haley, uh, I think that was one of her more effective laying out of look, this is why both the current president and the former president uh, aren't in the right space. Uh, She's really been doubling down on that and linking the two presidents together in terms of failed efforts. Uh, She's also been going much more strongly after the former president in terms of failed policy. Here's how she described that.
4: Trump loses the court case on immunity. They lose the bill on Mayorkas. They lose the bill on Israel. And you have the RNC chair lose her job. That's all losing because Trump had his fingerprints on all of it. He lost in 2018. He lost in 2020. He lost in 2022. How many more times do we have to lose before we realize that he's actually the problem?
1: So that's Nikki Haley making her case. Again, she's trying to make up ground in South Carolina. She needs at least to close the gap uh, there in order to make it really interesting going into Super Tuesday coming up on March the 5th, where I think everything will become very clear Uh, on both sides of the aisle in terms of what 2024 is actually going to look like. The one thing that I think we all have to make sure we step back on as we look at all the politics of this is those from the Democratic Party and those from the Republican Party just want this to be the same choice as always, either or, good, evil. That's how they're going to break it down. And they'll say if Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running, that's going to steal If anyone says they're stealing votes from Joe Biden, that that's bad or that uh, Joe Manchin would steal votes from former President Trump. Uh, There's no stealing of those votes. That's what a choice actually looks like. And it's up to all of us as voters if we really want a choice. To actually make a choice. And if you choose one or the other, that's fine. But there should be a third choice as well. And we'll continue to have that conversation here on Inside Sources. That wraps it up for hour number one. We'll step aside for some top of the hour news, but don't go anywhere. We're going to do a deep dive into the life and legacy of Alexei Alvani and what he means to the world coming up next on Inside Sources. Stick around. KSL FM
0: Midvale.
4: KSL Salt Lake City.
0: From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station. Inside Sources. Inside, Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson. On Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio.
1: Well, today we heard the devastating news that Russian political activist and lawyer Alexei Novani has died at the age of 47, 47 years of age. He was in a Russian prison serving a 29-year sentence. If you're unfamiliar with the name Alexei Novani, he was uh, the most formidable opposition challenger that Vladimir Putin faced inside of Russia. Uh, He fought to expose the lies, the corruption, the violence, and abuse that runs deep and central to Vladimir Putin's regime. He survived an assassination attempt by Vladimir Putin in 2020 by poisoning and then returned to Russia, returned, imagine that, to carry on his work. I think his story deserves to be heard by everyone and deserves a much deeper dive. So let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Well, as we uh, took in the news this morning uh, that uh, Navani, Alexei Navani, at the age of 47, uh, died in a Russian prison uh, overnight, uh, to me that's uh, one devastating news. Uh, it's Not good uh, for the freedom uh, and liberty of those inside of Russia, Uh, clearly uh, something that Vladimir Putin uh, has on his hands, uh, and that's been the reaction around the world today. We'll dive into that just a a little bit deeper as we go. Uh, I think we need to to explore and look at this extraordinary life uh, and why it mattered and what the meaning is and the lessons it has for us right here at home as well as around the world and again, he was someone who uh, spoke out, uh, something that is frowned upon by the establishment inside of the Kremlin, uh, particularly Vladimir Putin. Uh, he fought for years to expose the the lies, the corruption, the violence, the abuse uh, that is, again, just part and parcel to the Vladimir Putin regime, and faced all kinds of opposition. Uh, of course, he was poisoned at one point in 2020, later returned to Russia, kept going in the work and repeatedly arrested, ultimately sentenced to 29 years uh, in some pretty hard places inside of Russia. Uh, And so I want to dig into it just a little bit so we can uh, kind of broaden your understanding of who he was and what he did and why it really matters. And I actually want to go back to an interview that uh, Alexei Navalny did uh, with CNN's Christiane Amanpour back in 2020. Uh, So this was after he had been poisoned, uh, nearly lost his life. He had recovered and then announced that he was going back into Russia. Uh, he told Christiane Amanpour why he wanted to return to Russia after being poisoned by the leaders in the government.
3: Well, well, I don't uh, think that I uh, can have a, such a privilege being safe in Russia, but uh, I have to go back because I don't want these uh, you know, groups of killers exist in Russia. I don't want Putin to uh, be ruling of Russia. I don't want him being president. I don't want him being czar of Russia, because, well, he's killing people. He's the reason why our the whole country is degradating. He's the reason why people are so poor. We have 25 million people living below the poverty line. And the whole degradation of system, uh, uh, fortunately for me, including system of assassination of people, he's uh, the reason of that. And uh, I want to go back and try to change it.
1: So it was Alexei Navalny uh, in 2020 giving his reasons why he would go back to Russia, even though he said, uh, I know I won't be safe, but I have to go back. People are suffering. The corruption is so deep. Assassinations for anyone who speaks out against Vladimir Putin has to be exposed. Uh, in an amazing documentary called Navalny, uh, released in 2022, the filmmakers actually asked Alexei what his message was to the Russian people and what it would be if the government actually decided to kill him. Uh, his final message was succinct and important. My message
0: for
3: the uh, situation when I'm killed is very simple: not give up.
1: Don't give up. Don't give up. And I actually want to read you the extended statement, a written statement from Navalny uh, that he gave, should he be killed, a statement to the Russian people. Uh, And listen closely to this. I think this is instructive uh, and important for all of us. Alexei said, listen, I've got something very obvious to tell you. You're not allowed to give up. If they decide to kill me, it means that we are incredibly strong. We need to utilize this power to not give up, to remember we are a huge power that is being oppressed by these bad men. We don't realize how strong we actually are. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So don't be inactive. Again, you're not allowed to give up. That was his message to the Russian people. He knew, I think, at some point he was going to be killed by Vladimir Putin and those uh, in power in the Kremlin. And so that was his message uh, to the Russian people. You are powerful and we have to stay engaged and active. And I think we can apply a lot of that right here at home. Because it's easy for us to just disengage. But the fact that there's opposition, lets you know how powerful you actually are. I think it's one of the ironic things about this talk of of third-party candidates for president. Both the left and the right are furious, filing lawsuits, making it incredibly difficult. Why? Because they know that the voice of the people is powerful. Alexei Navalny understood that, and he was encouraging his countrymen inside of Russia to recognize how powerful they are and to not give up Uh, and to keep pressing forward. Now, of course, there was a uh, a gathering in uh, Germany uh, going on over the weekend. European leaders are in Munich uh, for the International Security Conference. Alexei's wife, uh, Yulia Navalny, is there. Here was her message following the announcement of her husband's death.
2: I thought for a long time, is it worth for me to come here or to fly to my children straight away? But then I thought, what would Alexei do in my place? And I'm confident that he would be here. He would be on this stage.
1: Yulia Navalny went on to call upon the world community to unite against Vladimir Putin and his oppressive regime. I would like
2: to call upon the global community, everyone in this room, people around the world, so that we would unite together and overcome that evil, overcome the terrible regime that is currently in Russia.
1: So that's the framing, uh, the passing, the death of Alexei Navalny uh, in a Russian prison at the age of 47, again, a a fierce freedom fighter, a formidable opposition leader against Vladimir Putin, uh, who uh, died in a Russian prison today. When we come back, we're going to stay with the conversation a little bit longer. I think the lessons are so important for us right here in our own community and country. We'll listen to some of the reaction from leaders around the world, including President Biden, President Zelensky of Ukraine, and others, as we dissected and looked at what is the real meaning of this and how do we all move forward and what does it mean to the future of freedom. Stick around, we'll be right back.
0: Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Get deeper insights on the news from Inside Sources.
1: Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as it always is. I am Boyd Matheson, and as we continue the conversation, we want to stay with the question as it relates to the death of Russian political activist Alexei Navalny. Uh, died this morning in a Russian prison. Again, he was uh, serving a almost 30-year uh, prison term uh, there inside of Russia because of his opposition to Vladimir Putin, because he stood up, because he ran against, because he tried to shine light on corruption uh, within government. And when you have that kind of scenario play out, all of us, all of us should take note. Uh, This is not just about a a journalist. This is not just about a politician. Uh, These are about the principles of freedom. And we need to really take a close look in terms of what this means and in terms of Vladimir Putin and his power. I don't think it's an accident uh, that uh, Navalny uh, died at the hands of uh, the Russian government. We don't know exactly how that all took place, but it is very clear, unequivocal, uh, that Vladimir Putin is responsible for the death of Alexei Navalny, uh, and interestingly, it's a a month, just one month before Vladimir Putin will stand for election to a fifth term uh, as the leader of Russia. And as most uh, authoritarian regimes do, I predict uh, he will win with about ninety plus percent of the vote, which we know is an impossibility in any country, regardless of what's going on. Uh, but that's tends to be how dictators win elections. They, they say it's 90 plus percent, uh, and then they go after the rest. Uh, but I want to go to some of the national and international reaction uh, to his passing, uh, starting earlier this morning uh, with Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, was in Munich, again, with a lot of those European leaders. She gave her reaction to the news of Alexei's death. We've all
4: just received reports that Alexei Navalny has died in Russia. My prayers are with his family, including his wife, Yulia, who is with us today. And if confirmed, this would be a further sign of Putin's brutality. Whatever story they tell, let us be clear. Russia is responsible.
1: Clearly, Russia is responsible. This is part of Vladimir Putin's brutality. and, And there should be no equivocation on that, no hesitation on that. It's very clear. The interesting thing, uh, of course, uh, President Biden has said that uh, if anything were to happen to Alexei Navalny, that there would be dire and severe consequences. It will be very interesting to see what the president does as a response to this. Uh, Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was also there in Munich for the security conference. Uh, He said this upon hearing the news.
3: We have just learned, as Mr. Chancellor has just said, that Alexei Navalny has died in a Russian prison. Obviously, he was killed by Putin, like thousands of others who have been tormented, tortured because of this one person. Putin doesn't care who dies as long as he retains his position. And that is why he must not keep anything. Putin must lose everything. He must not retain anything and must be held accountable for what he has done.
1: Uh, Zelensky clearly laying out uh, the options and what happens as Putin continues to be in power. He does not care Uh, the Ukrainian leader said, about the death of anyone as long as he maintains control of power. Uh, And so clearly a rallying point there at the uh, conference there in Munich. President Biden, of course, gave remarks about Alexei Navalny during a press conference uh, earlier today before he headed to Ohio. Uh, He said that uh, Putin uh, is personally responsible for his death.
6: Reports of his death, if they're true, and I have no reason to believe it or not, Russian authorities are going to tell their own story. But make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality.
1: That was an important part of the president's speech this morning. And I, as we were sitting there listening to it in the newsroom, uh, I was very pleased. The president was very strong very clear, uh, very compassionate, very connected on all of this. The president went on to talk about the heroic actions of Alexei Navalny and his choosing to return to Russia after nearly being killed rather than live very comfortably in exile.
6: Even in prison, he was a powerful voice for the truth. And he could have lived safely in exile after the assassination attempt on him in 2020, which nearly killed him, I might add. Instead, he returned to Russia knowing he'd likely be imprisoned or even killed if he continued his work. But he did it anyway because he believed so deeply in his country, in Russia.
1: Uh, The president, as I said, was very strong. I loved the first three quarters of the speech. Uh, It was on message. It was on principle. It was on point. It was a rallying call for freedom-loving people around the world. It was everything you would hope would come out of the Oval Office and the President of the United States in such a time as this. And then everything changed. And while I will praise the President for the first three quarters of his speech, I think he completely unraveled it uh, in a few moments that he couldn't resist going political.
6: You know, we have to realize what we're dealing with with Putin. All of us should reject the dangerous statements made by the previous president, that invited Russia to invade our NATO allies if they weren't paying up. He said if an ally did not pay their dues, he'd encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want. I guess I should clear my mind here a little bit and not say what I'm really thinking, but let me be clear. This is an outrageous thing for a president to say. I can't fathom. As long as I'm president, America stands by our sacred commitment to our NATO
0: allies.
1: And the president continued on down that path and into the question and answer portion uh, with just more political jabs uh, and a focus uh, on his likely opponent for re-election, the former president. And while I get it, uh, I don't get it. Uh, I, I don't think it's right. And I will criticize the president for going down that path at a moment where he had the attention of the world. He had the attention of the American people. He made great points on principle, rallying people together, calling on the better angels of our nature. And then you could even hear it in his voice. You could hear it in the cadence as he was talking. He clearly went off teleprompter. He clearly went off script uh, because he couldn't resist trying to connect it all to try to score a political point. Uh, If you want to score some political points, that's fine. But the when to is as important as the how or the what when you're the president of the United States. doesn't matter your political party. Uh, there are times when, as president of the United States, uh, you stand solely uh, with those that mourn. You stand solely with people who are being oppressed. You stand solely with those that are struggling or in the midst of war or oppression and there are times for politics and campaigns. That's okay. That's part of the system here. But the when to, the when to is every bit as important as the how or the what you say on the political side. And this was a really bad when to. The president even caught himself saying, oh, I should stop and clear my mind. I should clear out what I really want to say. But then he said it anyway. And that's a good lesson for all of us. If you ever have that thought, I wonder if I should say this, don't. (laughs) Just stop. Uh, It's a good indicator that you're about to say something that is either untimely, unseemly, or inappropriate. So just stop. Just because you can say something, just because you do have the microphone, doesn't mean you should say something. And focus on the right things. And I think that's where we kind of missed it with the president today. Uh, I think there were some important things that he did say at the beginning, at the outset of that, which I think was great. And uh, I think there were other things that he clearly missed. Uh, But the most important thing for all of us to think through as it relates to, to the death of Alexei Navalny is where does this go next? What does the rest of the world do with Vladimir Putin? There's already sanctions, there are already things happening because of what's going on in Ukraine. Does this rally people in a bigger way? Does this get the United States Congress to step up and appropriate funds? Uh, Or is this more just uh, a quick, scathing rebuke and then business as usual and the status quo prevails? Uh, I think this is a moment uh, in honor of Alexei Navalny where we should stand a little taller and be a little better and do a little more for the cause of freedom. All right, we'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. More Inside Sources coming up next.
0: Inside Sources. Inside, Inside sources. sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's Home for Elevated Conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio.
1: As we continue to look at the challenges of securing the border, dealing with immigration, we've also been talking about uh, what is happening in Ukraine, especially in light of. Vladimir Putin's continued brutality, both inside of Russia and in Ukraine, and Congress's inability to get anything passed uh, that can actually help in those causes. Uh, We will note that uh, there is a new bipartisan bill uh, that has been introduced in the House of Representatives. It's a little bit scaled down from the bill that passed in the Senate late last week. Uh, This one has about $66 billion uh, in military aid and some alternative actions relating to the border. So you remember in the Senate, they split it all out. It was uh, just funding for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, uh, along with some humanitarian aid uh, and some government aid for Gaza and for Ukraine. Uh, So in this new House bill. The uh, portions of that were stripped out. Uh, some of the uh, Gaza funding was stripped out, and a portion of the Ukraine's uh, funding was stripped out. So the portion that was stripped out was just the pure economic and government support aid. Uh, that uh, so this would just be military hardware uh, and munitions, and uh, that seems to have a lot more support. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what Speaker of the House Mike Johnson does with this. Or about seventy. Uh, representatives who signed on uh, to it. Of course, the magic number is 218. So there's still a long, long way to go. But it will be interesting to see what the conversation is around those. And many are lumping these all together, border security and uh, aid for Ukraine and Israel in particular. And the question will be, what does that look like? And especially in light of uh, today's tragic news, uh, the death of Alexia Navalny, uh, that uh, It will be interesting to see how that changes the dynamic of that conversation, if that spurs anything. Uh, To me, the interesting thing as it relates to the border, I want to dig into this because there's some new research out today from RMG uh, talking about how we talk about border security and immigration and uh, some really interesting things. I think one of the things that is really important for us to point out and think again, we've been talking about immigration in this country since the beginning. Uh, And we often don't equate this. Normally when we talk about things like the Declaration of Independence, uh, we talk about, you know, big, bold statements in terms of the ability to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness uh, that we're all created equal and so on. But you have to remember that the Declaration of Independence was a list of grievances. That's the bulk of that document, Uh, grievances against the crown and the government in England. And while we often talk about, well, it was about taxes and it was about search and seizure and it was about a military being able to go in and take things over or someone being able to get a fair trial. Do you know what the first thing listed was? Immigration. That's a think again moment for you. That in the Declaration of Independence, one of the things that colonists were frustrated with was immigration and they wanted more immigration. They wanted lots of immigration, but of course... Uh, The British Empire controlled the seas and controlled the process by which people could come over. And so that was a grievance for the colonists. And so I think one of the things that we have to embrace as we have a different kind of conversation about immigration and border security is, again, get rid of the fake fight and false choice. To me, this is all about the power of an and conversation that Americans, the vast majority of people in this country, see the United States as a nation of immigrants and a nation of laws. And that's who we are. We are a nation of immigrants and we are a nation of laws. And here's the interesting thing. Uh, There's probably about 15% of the population who say that all immigration is good, whether it's legal or illegal. These are kind of the open border, just let everybody come. It's only about 15%. Might even be a little smaller than that. There's also about 14-15% that say all immigration is bad. That we don't want anyone else coming in, we don't need you, we got enough people here already. Don't don't come. But the vast majority, the vast majority, 64% of Americans have an and thought when it comes to immigration and border security. of Americans say that legal immigration is good and illegal immigration is bad for the country. So can we just start the conversation there? Vast majority of Americans, illegal immigration is bad. Legal immigration is good and important for our future as a country. And so this leads to all kinds of conversations in terms of how we talk about this. And to me, one of the most stunning things is that most Americans uh, blame the government on this. And this goes all the way, you can go all the way back to the Bush administration, talking about changes uh, to immigration policy. And a lot of times over the years, we've seen promises and these big, massive, comprehensive bills coming out thousands of pages long. And the interesting thing is that the American people just don't buy it. They don't think anybody They don't think anybody in Washington is actually serious about securing the border and fixing the immigration system. Nobody's buying into that. Why? Because politicians have shown us over and over and over that they are completely unserious about actually solving the problem because they always let the politics get in the way because they'd much rather have a wedge issue to win a political campaign on or raise some campaign cash off of that they don't actually want to deal with. With the issues. So it's interesting to me uh, when you look at uh, things at the border. uh, This is again coming from RMG research. uh, 70% of Americans, 70, that's a big number, uh, favor imposing strict penalties on employers who hire illegal immigrants. 64% favor arresting and deporting uh, people who have entered the country illegally in the last year. So not someone who's been in the country for a long time, not someone who's assimilated and been a great member of the community, uh, not the dreamers, uh, but people who have come in illegally just in the last year. So very interesting. Uh, Sixty two percent favor expanding the border wall. Interesting. Uh, And so as you look at those numbers, you can see that those in Washington, D.C. are really out of step with the vast majority of the American people. And you can break it down by all kinds of different demographics. uh, But the ultimate conversation is that we have to have a different conversation, not the political conversation, but the principle and the policy conversation when it comes to the border. And I think it's totally fair and totally reasonable for a lot of us to be angry or frustrated with the failure of government when it comes to border security and immigration. But we should never be angry about those who have accepted the invitation in. presence of both parties have created space for that to happen. Congress's abdication of their duty has been part of that process as well. And so we have to be ready to have a different kind of conversation. And it is where the American people are. We can solve this. Uh, We just have to rise up uh, and make sure that our politicians understand that this is where we, the people, actually are. We'll be right back.
0: Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources.
1: Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as always. I am Boyd Matheson, and as we round out the program today, I've been thinking a lot since my conversation and interview with Yeonmi Park, a defector from North Korea, talking through the different empires that she lived under, the fact that she lived under an oppressive empire in North Korea, that she was then in China, sold into slavery, but ultimately ended up here in an empire that was free. And so all of this conversation, all of the things that we've been talking about as it relates to empires uh, has actually got me thinking about something else that I shared on Sunday edition this past week that I want to pass along because it's a different kind of empire. It's an empire of the mind. And it actually goes back to a Harvard University commencement ceremony where none other than Winston Churchill was the keynote speaker. And Winston Churchill at Harvard uh, spoke somewhat prophetically about predicting the collapse of the most dominant military and political empires, and that the world would then enter a new phase of development. The new phase, Winston Churchill foretold, was going to be one where creativity, innovation, ingenuity, personal initiative would really rule the day. And then in one of my favorite lines from Churchill, he said, The empires of the future will be the empires of the mind. I love that. And Churchill, of course, couldn't have been more right on that one. Here in America, we've been on this fast track of revolutionary development, technological breakthroughs, all kinds of transformational products and personalized services that we have in the world today. We now experience more change and more innovation in one of our 24-hour days than was created in decades of our grandparents' lives. The speed is just breathtaking. And in this fast-forward society, I always say that it's knowledgepreneurs that are always going to be in demand. People who are forever learners. Uh, They're almost always the most successful and highly compensated people, regardless of what profession or field of endeavor they're in. We've talked a lot about higher education lately on this show, and it's true that the shelf life of a university degree in a rapidly changing world is shrinking. In fact, there are a host of experts, including the Wall Street Journal, who have posited that Those graduating with a degree only have about an 18-month head start in the workplace versus those who don't. So regardless of measurement or uh, advantage, the key for students exiting college with an eye towards creating their own career and professional empire is really simple. Be a forever learner. We talk about that. Uh, I think the two most important takeaways a student should acquire from their time, really from the time they enter kindergarten all the way through college graduation, is really simple. They need to learn how to learn, the discipline of learning, and they need to learn to love learning. So the discipline, knowing how to expand ideas, stretch knowledge, write, do those things, is absolutely vital. But sadly, much of our overstructured learning models, especially in higher education, uh, are creating this negative association to learning. So rather than fostering a love of learning, most people end up dreading it, and by the time they get done with college, they're done with learning. Now, most of us can think of a high-impact teacher or mentor in our world who really created space by showing us what they loved and made learning exciting. Uh, sadly, in our models today, we don't really compensate those empire of the mind kind of teachers. Uh, we often do those who do research or write white papers for periodicals. Uh, and so it's a, it's a different matter when a teacher is able to transmit love of learning. That's where empires of the mind really began Uh, The late author and uh, famous historian David McCullough experienced an empire of the mind kind of teacher when he was at Yale, and it absolutely, literally changed his life and impacted millions all around the world. Uh, I remember during my time in Washington, D.C., appropriately sitting in the Library of Congress (laughs) talking with David McCullough, and he described his experience at Yale with this teacher who transformed his world. So McCullough was an English major, uh, did not like history, by the way, but he actually had to have a history credit in order to graduate. He didn't like memorizing. He didn't like all of the dreaded parts of history. So he'd put this class off until his very last semester. So McCullough went in kind of grumbling to himself that the class was not even going to be taught by a real professor. It was a graduate assistant. Well, that graduate assistant, John Hubbard, walked into the room. And John Hubbard believed that the best way to teach was to show students what you love. So in a very magical moment, he informed the class that they would never, ever be tested on dates, locations, or events. The class would focus entirely on the stories and the principles of those who made history. David McCullough said right there in that Library of Congress moment, He said, it was like the windows were blown open for me. He said, that instant history was no longer a collection of facts and dates. It became an inexhaustible river of ideas to be explored. I love that. An inexhaustible river of ideas to be explored. And that really was the beginning of his empire of the mind. Of course, he went on to become a world-renowned historian. He was really the master of the art of narrative history and his impact will be felt for generations to come. He was a forever learner right up to the day he passed away. McCullough taught me that discovery most often comes not from finding something unknown or long hidden, but from seeing afresh what has been on the table all along. McCullough's empire not only expanded to bridge the past and the present through history, he inspired many to begin work on their own empire of the mind. I remember talking with a uh, high tech executive who had actually gone through his his phone list on his contact list on his phone and he had contact with everybody and he narrowed it down to just 70 people 70 people that he said I will always take their call I will always immediately respond to their text. And so I asked him how do you get in that club? What's the what's the requirement? He said it's really simple. I just ask myself one question. Is this person still learning. And if they're still learning, they're always worth talking to. That's kind of the empires of the mind mantra for sure. So in every field, uh, there's opportunities to learn and grow and be successful. Uh, But I think that Churchill got it right. Uh, The empires of the future really will be the empires of the mind. So a good question for all of us is what are we doing to build that ourselves? Are we a forever learner? What are we doing to foster that in our organizations, businesses, and communities with our children and grandchildren? It truly is the reality uh, that if we are forever learners, uh, we have some great empires yet ahead. I think the basis of the empire of freedom is built on being a forever learner. Well, that wraps it up for us here on Inside Sources today, here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson. Thanks for listening today. And as always, as you go out into the world, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference.
0: KSL FM Midvale,
4: KSL Salt Lake City.
0: From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios, this is KSL News Radio,
4: Utah's news, traffic, and weather station.